Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal power. He's a person with a personality. Someone we can get to know and grow in a relationship with him. Someone who we can please and we can grieve. So as we continue in our study on the Holy Spirit, looking at this component of who God is and how he works throughout the world. Uh, we're going to hop, skip, and jump through the book of Acts a little bit. So if you want to turn, uh, if you've got a Bible or Bible app, to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Uh, pop quiz. Who is the main character in the book of Acts? You're no fun. Try again. All right, I don't like any of you guys. All right. <laughs> so... Okay, how many people are guessing the Holy Spirit because of context that we just said Holy Spirit and then the book of Acts? If we didn't do that, who would you guess? Paul, Jesus, okay. Anything else? Peter, okay. Right, so if you're reading the book of Acts and you're in chapters 1 through 8 and then chapter 10, Peter seems like he's the guy. Jesus is the answer, so you know if anybody grew up in church, that's the answer you give to every question because you're not allowed to say Jesus isn't the answer because you're in church. In this particular case, it's not the answer we're looking for, though. And then Paul, if you're in chapter 9 or chapters 11 through 28, seems kind of like the main character. But, in fact, since you all stole the context of it, not letting me have any fun. You're right, but you're not fun. Um, the Holy Spirit is the main character in the book of Acts. And so what we see in this book that shows us the launch and the growth and development of the church is the work of the Holy Spirit and how he moves to bring about the will of God and the purpose of God for the glory of God through the people of God. So, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of, as fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, and the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were those dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are these not all speaking Galileans? All these men speaking Galileans. And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medicines and Elamites and all kinds of other words that are hard to pronounce and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and, yep, that's not even going to try, Cabotius, Pontus and Asia, Phiagra and Plamphia, Egypt and parts of Libya, <laughs> belonging, I should have just skipped, it's like started in verse 8 and then just be like, okay, we'll just jump down. <laughs> that wouldn't look so dumb. All right, both Jews and proselytes, Christians, Arabs... <laughs> Arabians, and uh, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? All right. So after that nice little, uh, I live in South Carolina. I can't pronounce places, all right? 
It's Pentecost. To give you some timeline, Jesus died on the cross. Then he rose from the dead. And he spent 40 days appearing to his disciples, giving them many convincing proofs he was alive before he ascended into heaven. So he's gone. Ten days later, we come to Pentecost. This is one of the three greatest Jewish feasts in the year. Think of it, it's like an Easter, a Christmas type of event. So Jews from all over the world would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this holy festival. And so the apostles are there. These great crowds are there. The Holy Spirit shows up. And the disciples begin to speak. And people, though they were from all over the world, spoke different languages, all heard the gospel being presented in their own native language. Ask me how that works. I have no idea why you're asking me. Okay? Like, there are people that will assert, oh, it's this or it's that. And they are really, to, to say with definitiveness, this is how the Holy Spirit worked there, is to overinflate your view of your own interpretation. We do not know. There are lots of different thoughts. Is it that the disciples were all talking in Aramaic, and when it came out of their mouth, everybody just hearing it? Is it coming from their tongue? Is it coming from the hearing of the person? Is it something in between? We just don't know. What we do know is it was kind of awesome. Because people start gathering around and the crowd start taking notice and they are astonished because these guys are from Galilee. And being from Galilee, well, it's, it's kind of like being a super redneck. Okay, it means that you are known across the world for having very poor pronunciation. They had a very guttural sound. It did not make them sound intelligent when they spoke. So they're not well thought of amongst intellectual communities. And like, these guys are talking in all these different languages, but they're clearly not educated in this, what's happening. And so there's this great big shock that goes on. I don't know how it happened. I don't know exactly how it worked. What I do know is that what's happening here is a reversal of Babel. Okay, in Genesis chapter 11, we see the people of the world all come together. They're unified in language, and they say, hey, let's build a giant tower into the heavens. And by heavens, it doesn't mean heaven like we think of it. In the Bible, when you see heavens, they had three different versions of heaven. The first heaven is the sky. The second heaven is where the stars are, so we call it outer space. And then the third heaven is what we would think of as being where God lives and resides. So when you see heavens in the Bible, typically, it, when it refers to it, it's referring to the sky. So they're building a big tall tower, okay? And that's what they're all getting together to do. The people are working together in harmony to build this giant tower to celebrate their own pride and ego in direct defiance of what God has called them to do. So God confuses their language. And now the people are understanding each other. It sounds like everybody else is babbling, so they call it the Tower of Babel. That's right. The earliest version of a dad joke came from the Bible, Making them is biblical. <laughs> You're welcome. So now there's this divided language. The people disperse and they begin moving around. And this divided language creates a divide in culture and a divide in people. So what happens at Babel is out of one comes many. But now everybody's gathered together, many, and the Holy Spirit communicates. And here in their own language, many are becoming one. When the first Christian sermon is preached, the genuine question is, is this right? Is this of God? Is this from him? Is this what we're supposed to do? Are we supposed to agree with this? We see all these signs, this evidence, but is this what God is doing? How could we possibly know that this new move was a move of God? If the Spirit of God shows up and does something that cannot naturally occur, the Holy Spirit comes, 
as God's seal of approval on this new message, new movement, new church to show that this is from him. So that's what we see, Acts 2. Then we jump to Acts 8. Verse 14. Now when the apostles heard what's heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Acts 1 through 7. The church entirely consists of Jewish converts. And despite the fact that Jesus had instructed the church to go to the ends of the earth, preaching the gospel and making disciples, they are still stayed in Jerusalem until the persecution of Stephen, when he is executed by Saul in chapter 7, then the church begins to disperse. Persecution breaks out, they move all around, and Philip goes to the region of the Samaritans. Now this is important, because Samaritans aren't Jews. See what happened during the Assyrian captivity when Assyria conquered Israel, what they did was they came through and they took the educated, powerful, rich, and influential Jewish people out of Israel, took them into captivity all around the rest of the Assyrian Empire, and then they brought in other Assyrians to stay with the poor, less influential, less educated Israelites that they left in the nation. As a means of assimilation to avoid uprising, this is a brilliant strategy. And so over time, what happens is that these Jewish people living in Israel began to intermarry with the Assyrians, and thus the Samaritans came into existence. They are half Jew, half Samaritan, and fully hated by the Jews. These two groups do not get along. They have hundreds of years of mutual hatred, war crimes, violence, and discord. In fact, most Jews, when they had to travel through the regions of Israel, would go around rather than through Samaria, adding three days to their journey in one direction just to avoid accidentally coming in contact with a Samaritan. That's how bad this distaste they had for each other was. But now, this new move of the church we have confirmed is through Jesus. And now these Samaritan people are hearing the gospel. and They're responding to the gospel. And we're moving into some uncharted territory. And the same question that was being asked in chapter 2 is being asked in chapter 8. Is this okay? Is this right? Is this of God? Because what we have to remember is that throughout the history of Israel, they were punished for any association or affiliation with outside nations. Okay? So imagine this. Imagine you went to shake someone's hand at church. You're like, I'm going to be friendly. I'm going to shake their hand. And as you went to shake their hand, somebody stabbed you in the hand. You're like, well, that's not fun. And so you go to the doctor, they heal it, they get it fixed up. Then you see them the next time, as soon as your hand just finished healing, you go to shake their hand and somebody jumps out and stabs you in the hand again. It's the weirdest analogy you're probably ever going to hear. Okay? And that happens over and over and over again. Every time you try to shake this person's hand, you get stabbed in the hand for 10 years. Then you start feeling this conviction, this move of God, that you need to go shake that person's hand. You're going to be a little apprehensive. A little hesitant to do it. Even if you feel this compulsion, like, hey, I think I'm supposed to do this. Your history, your track record, your experience is saying, nope, that does not go well for us. You ought to be careful because there's somebody who wants to stab you in the hand for doing this. It's such a weird analogy. That's what's happening with the Jews. 
They've been punished for so long for association that they genuinely don't know if this is okay. And so they sent Peter and John. Peter and John show up. They place their hands on the Samaritans, and the Holy Spirit shows up. The same seal of approval, the same confirmation, the same validation that God gave to the launch of the church at Pentecost. He is now doing here in Samaria to show this is a move of God. This is approved by God. And Jew and Samaritan can now join together in harmony under the banner of Jesus. And so what the Holy Spirit does here is he is tearing down a wall of division that history and culture had set up. But the question then becomes, how far does that wall go down? Okay, because Samaritans are still half Jewish. So maybe that half is just God being extra gracious now and allowing them to be a part of this kingdom. So now that this new move is happening, does the new move also include Gentiles who aren't Jewish at all? These are the, like, we can look back and go, oh yeah, obviously, because we're here, but... For them, this was a real struggle. It's easy to look back and see clearly, but when you're looking at the thing in the moment, trying to honor God in the complexity and fog of life, it's very difficult. And so they're genuinely struggling with this, genuinely trying to be faithful and to honor God in how to move forward. And so the Holy Spirit keeps showing up and creating clarity. So in Acts 10, we jump to Caesarea. And in Acts 10, you're going to meet a centurion named Cornelius. Here's a little trick. Anytime you see a centurion in the Gospels, especially in the writings of Luke, he's always a good guy. Cornelius is a well-respected man who lives a good life. He's good to his community. And God starts to move in his family. So at that time, Peter, who's been there, who's there in Acts 2, who was there in Acts 8, he is... He receives kind of this trance from God, a kind of a vision. Sometimes like he falls into a sleep. And then there's this blanket that comes down in this trance that he has filled with unclean animals. And he hears a voice that says, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no, nah, I'm not doing that. That's unclean. The source not eating unclean food was a source of pride for the Jewish people. And then the voice says, what God has called clean, made clean, do not call common. Peter has this vision three times. Now, that's a particular note to Peter. If you remember, he denied Jesus three times. And then Jesus reinstated him three times, coming to him saying, do you love me? Peter says, yes, and he says, feed my sheep three times. So when things happen in Peter's life in triplicate, Peter starts paying extra special attention. So he has this vision from God three times, and all of a sudden, people knock on his door. They're going, hey, we want to take you to this Gentile's house. And he goes, I feel like God was just telling me something about this, so okay, let's go. And when he gets there, what he says is, it is unlawful. As you know, it is unlawful for me to associate or enter the house of someone from another nation. Right? So I'm not making this discord up. Right? This is in the text. It is unlawful for a Jew to even enter the home of someone who is not Jewish. That's how big this divide was. But the law of man versus the instructions of God, Peter goes with God. And so he begins to preach the gospel. And here's what happens. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Christ Jesus, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout Judea, all, all throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. 
And then in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was being poured out even on Gentiles. Three times the Holy Spirit shows up in the book of Acts. And each time it is to tear down a wall of division, to bring unity to the people of God in Jesus. As the church grows and goes, carrying out the mission of Jesus for the glory of God, the Holy Spirit shows up and works to unify the people of God under that calling and for that purpose. The Holy Spirit shows us here what Paul tells us in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Church, this does not mean that nationality and gender cease to exist. What it means is there is no longer a divide between people and their worth. That there is no caste system in the kingdom of God. That God does not play favorites. There's no south side of heaven. That every one of us, or who are through the grace of God, at the sacrifice and atoning work of Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, are made children of God. And there is no difference. It does not matter how old you are, your gender, the color of your skin, where you're from, your financial situation, your successes or failures in life, the struggles that you have. You are not lesser than any other believer, for we are all made one in Christ Jesus, unified by the grace of God according to his purpose in calling us. So we don't have in the kingdom of God, there's not a coach and a business class and a first class section where you pick your seats based on how well you do or how well you lived. We are all the same in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's tireless work throughout the book of Acts was to cultivate that unity in and among us. In fact, it might even be unfair to call it a work One of the core values of the spirit of the living God is to create unity among the people of God. And so we ought to be very careful about what we say and do that might hinder or disrupt that unity. Go to Ephesians 4. Verse 1, Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father above all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are called by Jesus to follow him. That is not a decision you make once. It's not a box that you check. It's an active, ongoing process. And our response to the grace, the joy, the hope, and the life that we have in Jesus is to walk in a manner that is worthy of him. And that manner 
is the unity of the Holy Spirit. We honor Jesus, we obey Jesus when we walk in the unity of the Spirit. We are called to maintain. That word is important, right? It's not obtain. To obtain is to take hold of something for a time, right? If you're an art collector and you obtain a rare painting, you have that painting, but you can sell that painting, you can give it to a museum, it doesn't stay in your possession. You've obtained it, but not maintained it. That's the difference is maintain is ongoing. It is continual, perpetual, over and over. So what we are called to do is not just to reach a point of unity and then let it go. What we're called to do is to grab hold of the unity of the Spirit of God and never let it go. And oh boy, is that hard. Because we're so different. Right? I mean, you look around the room, we're different. We dress different, think different, act different. We have different values and ideas, different priorities, different goals and ambitions, different careers, different families, different experiences. We have different social and political views. We are different in so many ways. And those differences will either result in conflict and tension or in unity in the Spirit of God for the glory of God. But what makes it so hard is that even when we share a love for Jesus, a devotion to Jesus, a desire to pursue Jesus before all things and above all things, we're so different in how we go about that. And church, that is not new. Let me show you what I mean. 64 AD. Rome is ruled by an emperor named Nero. Nero is a low-functioning sociopath. He burns a third of Rome, and then there's a big riot. People are very upset, so he needs a scapegoat, so he blames Christians. And the first official persecution of the church begins. And so what would happen is Roman soldiers would go to the houses of those who were believed or, or thought to be Christians. They would drag them out of their homes, and they would demand that they deny Jesus. And if they did deny Jesus, they'd be set free. And if they did not, they and their families would be either executed or arrested. And in those moments, there were some to save themselves or to save their families who denied Jesus. And then the persecution ended. And they wanted to come back. They came to the church saying, okay, we're, we're here. We believe we want to be part of you again. And the church had three primary responses that it made. The first group were called the softliners. The softliners said, we totally understand. It was a horrible situation. We get it. Welcome back. It's so good to have you home. So good to have you as part of our family again. No questions asked. You're back in. Then there were the moderates. The moderates said, listen, we need you to understand that what you did was wrong. Jesus died on a cross for you, and you denied him to save yourself. That was, I, we understand the choice. We get that that was a difficult choice, but you made the wrong choice. And the rest of us here were the ones that didn't make that choice. And so we're going to let you back in. You get to be a part of us again, but you're going to be on probation. There's certain things that you don't get to participate in, like communion, until you prove to us that you are as in this thing as we are. Because this is a life or death thing for us. Believing in Jesus is more important than anything that happens to us in this life. You don't get to deny him again. So you got a chance to earn your way back, to prove your way back, not to salvation, but into our community to prove to us that you're serious about this following Jesus thing. And then there were hardliners. Hardliners. 
and said, no. You denied Jesus to save yourself. You will never be one of us again. We will never welcome you back. You're done. Take any issue, any subject that is not clear-cut, undeniable, the Bible says this or that, any controversial topic or subject of opinion, and you'll see these three schools of thought within the church. Not always in just three lanes. It's typically more of a spectrum. And on one side, the extreme, you have the hardliners. On the other side, the extreme, you have the softliners, and you have everything in between. And the hardliners, right, their focus, their priority is the sovereignty of God and the holiness of God. And they're so focused on obedience to him and honoring him through that that they tend to be a little ungracious towards everybody else. They're often dogmatic, typically legalistic. And they come across a little bit like religious Nazis, right? Oh, you love Jesus. Now, here's the list of things that you can no longer have. And then you open it up and it just says fun. And you're like, well, this is, this is great. Cool. Might as well just throw your TV away because you're never going to watch that little sin box. Okay, you're never having fun again. And it's easy to judge them and to mock them because sometimes their behavior is ridiculous and they do draw lines that they shouldn't draw. But they're drawing them out of their love for Jesus out of their devotion to him and their desire to honor and glorify him, recognizing his sovereignty and rule. And on the other side, you have the softliners, who are the exact opposite. The hardliners draw lines that they shouldn't. The softliners don't seem to draw lines at all. They are soft on sin to the point where they seem to be tolerant, accepting, even sometimes seeming to celebrate sin. Because their focus is on the grace of God on the Savior, Jesus. And, and they're so kind of polarized against the overexpression of the hardliner that they've reacted a little bit too far. See, where the hardliner is really good with truth and really bad with love, the softliner is really good with love and really bad with truth because they don't want to offend. They don't want to hurt people's feelings. They don't want to come across as critical or judgmental, and so sometimes they just don't take a stand at all. And it can be easy, just like with the hardliners, to write them off as being cowardly or soft or not loving Jesus. But the motivation of their heart is they don't want to be the reason someone turns away from him. Their approach is so very different, but their strategy is if I offend you to the point where you leave, there's no more relationship, there's no more opportunity, there's no more chance for me to continue to share the gospel with you. And so both sides, while the extremes can go very wrong, they're approaching following and glorifying Jesus in very different ways. The thing that makes the struggle so great is that no matter where you are on the spectrum, you assume that your view is right. Your position is the best. Your attitude and alignment is more mature, more important, more biblical than anybody else's. And that's a challenge. Now, we got to be clear, there are still lines. The hardliner is in danger of moving over into that camp of being a full-blown Pharisee of whom Jesus says, you brood of vipers, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. If you didn't get that from the context, that's not a compliment. Okay? 
the hardliners are at risk of pushing things too far and of elevating rules and laws above Jesus. And the softliner is in danger of the opposite, of not caring about those things enough, of caring too much about loving other people to the neglect of honoring and obeying Jesus. So it's like, yeah, I love Jesus, so I'm starting a harem. Like, no, still no. Okay? Sin is still sin, and there's no world in which engaging, celebrating, or participating in sin suddenly becomes a way of honoring Jesus. So we're not talking about the extremes where it's obviously against Scripture. What we're talking about is within the fence of it's open for interpretation. In the gray areas, in the fog. But if we're not careful, the devil will stir up our pride to turn our differences into divisions. Oh, you listen to secular music. I don't think a good Christian should do that. As for me, it's always positive, encouraging Caleb. Okay? If it's not worship, it's devil music. Now listen, if that's your personal conviction, that's fine. If that's how you want to connect, I'm not saying that that's wrong. If you want to be like, hey, I just want to listen to worship music, then great, do that. But the trouble comes when we try to be so hard in our line against one sin that we commit another sin. When you start imposing your view, your interpretation, your approach to honoring Jesus on other people, you've now moved to the other side of that line. You understand what I'm telling you? You only want to listen to encouraging, positive, K-love, then great, do that. But when you start looking down on other believers who don't agree with you, there's a problem. So with that person sitting next to you, right? They, they love them some Led Zeppelin, right? Who cares? Okay, I get it. Nobody listens to Led Zeppelin anymore. I don't know what to do with you. I obviously don't know a lot about music, so uh, insert band that is not considered Christian here. Bon Jovi's still a thing? He's been around for like about 100 years he's been singing? Uh, yeah, so here we go. We're off track. Um, you're different. Right? You're different from the person that likes that rock music. You're different than the person that likes that, non, that non-Christian, that secular music as well. What if the reason God called them is not in spite of that difference, but because of it? Let me show you what I mean. Verse 11 of Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body in Christ until we all attain unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And when each part working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Maybe the way that God has wired, called, and equipped you to listen to only worship music and love K-Love will allow you to minister and reach a group of people that Led Zeppelin can't. 
but maybe that person who loves Led Zeppelin, if they still exist, maybe that opens a door to a group of other people who also apparently love Led Zeppelin. And that shared ground opens conversation. And that person who loves Led Zeppelin uses that connection to bring those people to Jesus. Are you still against it now? Is it still a source of division now? You see what I'm saying? Differences are not divisions until we place our pride in the center of them. We can all agree Jesus is the only way to the Father, but that doesn't mean that you are the only way to Jesus. Jesus calls some to different jobs. We have different roles, different things that we are meant to do. And the Holy Spirit's work, his passion, is to take different people with different gifts and to bring them together in the unity of the gospel in a way that only he can to carry out the shared mission and goal we have. It's kind of like a SEAL team. Right? So a SEAL team, you've got a group of guys with a shared core training. They have a core mission that they share, a core purpose that they are called to do. But each of them has a specific and different specialization or skill set. Those skill sets don't make them weak. They make them versatile. And the reason they have those different skill sets is so that team, working together in unity, can overcome and adapt to various obstacles or problems they have in, or, and to complete the quest and objective they've been given. This is how God designed the church. We are different on purpose. Because the person that comes easy for you to reach is someone that would be impossible for me to reach. And the person that gravitates naturally towards me might never respond to you. And so God calls different people to the same cause, to the same purpose, so that he might reach more people for his kingdom and for his glory. The Holy Spirit brings us together. We cannot allow our pride to cause us to look down on, criticize, belittle, or judge other believers who follow Jesus differently than we do. Again, we're not talking about sin here. There's still sin and that's still a problem. But when the approach is different, we shouldn't rejoice in that. We shouldn't celebrate that. We shouldn't Words are hard. Okay. We should celebrate and rejoice in that. Not act like our way is better. And if they became more like us, they'd get a little closer to Jesus. That's ego. Be careful that your behavior doesn't get in the way of the work that the Holy Spirit is calling us to do. Because we are different people. You came from different places. Listen, there are some of you who are in here right now, and you grew up in church. Your parents loved Jesus. They taught you to do the same, and you spent more time of your life. If you're being honest, you spent more of your time in a room with other people doing a Bible study than you have around people that use bad language. And that person sitting in the aisle across from you or sitting next to you, maybe, their experience is very different than yours. They didn't grow up hearing about Jesus. They grew up being abused by their parents. Some of us grew up around campfires singing kumbaya. The others grew up in trauma and pain. You think you're going to have the same approach? You think you're going to view things and approach things and see things the same way? No, we're different. We're different. That's okay. Because God made us different on purpose. 
the Holy Spirit, what he does is he creates unity, not uniformity. That's the problem we have. We try to make everybody the same. We're not making them the same. We have a shared goal, not a sameness. That's uniformity, not unity. So the goal of the Holy Spirit is to move us together in unity that we might have a, a shared conviction in Christ, a shared confidence in Christ, and a shared care for one another. That we can look at that diversity and recognize that it is the greatest strength that the church has. The Holy Spirit works to bring unlike things together for the glory of God. Because we have one calling, saved by one grace, one God, through one Jesus, given one message, one hope, one joy, one life. We are one church. drawn and grown by the one Spirit of God. The things that unite us are far more important than the things that divide us. What we have to understand and what we should recognize in this is that if we become a source of division, we're not holding on to the Holy Spirit, we're hindering the Holy Spirit. Not just in our own lives, but in the community around us. Because one of his core values is the unity of the people of God. And the greatest way in which we honor him, in which we grow in him, is to value that community, to cling to that community, to maintain that unity, that Jesus is above all, that he is greater than all, and that together, though we are different, our shared goal makes us stronger. Because church, that's how iron sharpens iron. Not by being the same, but by being different. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you give. For the love that we have from you, for the life that we have in you. And God, I pray that we would not let ourselves get in the way of your work that you would grow us in your spirit, grow us in your likeness, that through you, we might be even more effective servants of you. That you would build us up in love for one another. That your people would be a community unified for your purpose. That this would be a place where people heal, where people grow, and where people go. That you would use your people to bring about your glory to the ends of the earth. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.